Hey, you're listening to Rock and or Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm BJ and continuing the Power Pop series. Today, I present to you an interview I conducted with Parthenon Huxley. He got his start in a band called The Blazers out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. At the time, he went by Rick Miller and he played guitar and sang and wrote for that band. They had one album called How to Rock that came out in 1980. After that, he started going by Rick Rock and put out a single in 1983 called Buddha Buddha, and that song was also on a compilation on Dolphin Records called Mondo Montage. That single got him some recognition. He had a couple more songs on the sequel to Mondo Montage, More Mondo. He eventually landed a record deal with Columbia and released an album called Sunny Nights in 1988. And by that time, he had changed his name to Parthenon Huxley. Sunday Nights and the Columbia deal didn't really go anywhere, and he would resurface a few years later, but now going by P. Hux. As P. Hux, he put out a CD in 1995 called Deluxe that got him a lot of attention in the underground power pop scene. And as P. Hux, he has gone on to release five or six more albums and a couple of compilations. And in 1999, he joined ELO2. Okay, so let's hear the interview with Parthenon Huxley. I think this is a great conversation about making your way in a music business and how even if you're not necessarily famous, you could still make a living, develop a devoted fan base, and basically maintain a career out of the spotlight, but a special sort of personal relationship with your fans and turn that into a career. And Parthenon Huxley or P. Hux pulled it off. Well, would you be interested in like tell, telling the story of the the Blazers? The Blazers is an, is an interesting one because it's not. Well, I wonder the one thing I've been asking everybody is, what do you think of the term power pop? Uh, what what does it mean to you? Yeah, I, I I mean I see this argued online sometimes. It, it ultimately I don't think it really matters what you call what you call anything. Right. But to me, it's the second. You know, it's the second wave. It's the it's the early. Uh, bands that were influenced by the Beatles, you know, the second wave, like um, Raspberries and Badfinger and, you know, Big Star and all these bands where it was the first time that you said, oh, they sound like the Beatles, who weren't contemporaries of the Beatles, you know? Right. And of course, that's been going on for 50 years now. So, I mean, there's obviously the, I'm a Beatle guy and the influence is never ending. In fact, they're pretty much my religion. But that's what power pop is. And I guess I guess the other side of that is since the Beatles sounded like a little bit of everything, you could also say that power pop has a little bit more of the who uh, involved in it or, um, you know, a little more balls and guts. But I think it's basically just all us who really love a bashing kind of rock band with pretty melodies, you know. Right. Um that that's sort of what it is to me. It rocks, but it's pretty. That's that's kind of my favorite thing, like a beautiful melody over a, a fucking rocking band, you know. 
let's see what year did the blazers record come out was it 80 yeah 1980 so the blazers is kind of is more a lot of it's just a rock and roll record right but there's certain songs like don't worry about it now that's that's kind of a great power pop song was a funny story um i was like a junior in college at unc chapel hill and the leader of the blazers was this guy named sherman tate and the blazers the original blazers were kind of just um almost like an r&b and rockabilly and rock and roll sort of cover band and they had a few original songs and they made they made a record back when making a record was really rare so if you had a record in the stores it was like, oh, that's amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had an album that wasn't very good, but it was okay. And Sherman Sherman was a, was the front man, and he, he was an okay guitarist and an okay singer, but he really brought a lot of energy. Like, people loved watching him because he really kind of, he, he envisioned himself as kind of a badass rockabilly guy. And people loved it, and it was, you know, and you could dance to the Blazers. So he ran into me at the record, he worked at a record, show, record store, and he said, hey, our bass player and guitar player are both leaving. Do you want to think about maybe joining the Blazers? And so me and this guy, Lee Gildersleeve, joined the band. And I had just, around that time, had broken up with the first love of my life. So I had a whole shitload of songs. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I started, you know, suddenly I had a vehicle for my songs. And um, we learned, we learned, you know, six, eight, ten of my songs. And the the Blazers kind of turned into a, a hybrid cover rock and roll pop band 
power pop band. Like my stuff was really beatly and and so I started to we started to sound more like a early Tom Petty or Dwight Twilley or you know or Rockpile, all those kind of bands that were sort of rock and roll plus Liverpool, you know, like kind of a Memphis Liverpool hybrid. So that's what the Blazers were. And when we made that album, uh, Don Dixon, the producer, he, we opened for his band Arrogance, and he heard our sound check and he said, "Hey, how many songs? How many of your songs are is the band doing?" And I said, "No, about you know eight or ten. He says, "I think we ought to make a record." So it was kind of a perfect timing for me to be in a band playing all my songs and making a record, which I I think I put six original songs on there, and we had two covers and two of Sherman's. Um, so, so that's how that came about. It wasn't, it wasn't like I, I formed the Blazers and wanted to be rock pile or anything like that. It just sort of turned into that once, once my songs got incorporated into the set. One year of the Essentially, this is you got to remember. This is back in the days of of playing three sets a night for for the weekend, like Friday, Saturday, and sometimes even Sunday. Y your job was to play three sets a night and fill the dance floor. You know, back when people actually went to lo see live music and dance and get drunk and shit. So the choice of songs that Sherman brought to the band were always kind of up tempo. It could be Elvis Costello. Rodney Crowell or the Stones or whatever. It was just songs that people would dance to, you know. So my originals kind of snuck into that and got blended in with all these songs that people knew, and it went over well, and that's how that happened. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was thinking about how uh, being a record collector in the 90s, like before the internet, you would buy a lot of records just based on what it looked like, trying to find, mm -hmm. trying to figure out if you would like it. And one of my... One of the warning signs for me that I might not like it would be if the band had too many mustaches. <laughs> and it's <laughs> funny how everybody in the Blazers has a mustache, you know. <laughs> so I would have been kind well, of. At least, I, at least I think Sherman and Ronnie had beards, which is right. more, a little more acceptable. But I had that horrible first mustache of my life, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I know. And I'm. I think I'm drink. I have a can of Stroh's in my hand too. So it's 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 pretty bad. <laughs> but um you know you, you're living life you're not really watching what you're doing you're just sort of doing it yeah yeah i think the I, I if i remember right the first time i heard the blazers record was uh there was a guy you i used to trade rare stuff with through the mail 
and I think he sent me probably a cassette tape of it. And I who probably, was that? It was actually a guy who worked. Who I think he was a professor at MIT. He sent me a lot oh, of wow. really cool stuff back then. Um, That's a trip. And uh, I'm betting that I probably knew who you were and didn't know you were in the Blazers until later, like somehow figured that out at some point. <laughs> it's it's always fun to make those connections, you know, and realize, yeah. oh, this is what he did back then. Yeah, I love I love find, finding out where everybody was because every overnight success has about 10 to 20 years of shit behind him, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, Not but, that I was ever an overnight success, but... But I think if I had come across the Blazers record in a record store back then, I probably wouldn't have bought it <laughs> just by looking at it. Especially... No, absolutely. I mean, when, when when we used to shop, you know, when 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 you had 10 bucks to your name, you had to be really careful what you'd buy. So I, I always looked to see if the band looked cool. First of all, you had to, they had to look amazing, you know? Yeah. But But like I said, the Blazers was not my cool new wave band by any by any means it was it was a hybrid sort of it was either a, a beautiful hybrid or a mess you could you, know, <laughs> you could call it whatever you wanted to and 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 again i wasn't i didn't have the vision or whatever to try to form some cool new wave band that would um you know could, could compete nationally i i af, after i left the blazers i tried that a couple of times i had a band called the dads and we we tried to do that and Got a little bit of traction, and then I did Rick Rock, which which actually got more traction. Um, but I never designed a band to fit in. I was never that smart or calculating. I always just wanted a band that could play my songs, <laughs> right? No matter no matter what they were, you know. And and I felt like I have always had a good radar, a good personal radar. Like I know when I've got a good song. I've thrown out many more than anybody will ever hear. I, I, I think I know what a strong song is, at least when I write it. And that was that was always my only ambition was to hear the stuff that was in my head uh, be out there live playing for people and no matter what it was. So sometimes I would almost veer toward on trend and other times I completely wasn't. I, I've never be, really been guided by that. And my career has always kind of happened at odd times, you know, like. Um, like Sunny Nights, you know, in 1988, there really wasn't anything else like that coming out. You know, it was a lot of hair hair metal and all that kind of shit. But that's the record I wanted to make. You know, I, maybe Crowded House was probably the only other thing around that time that I felt was um, in that ballpark. You know what I mean? So I, I, I never had I never had a plan to to fit into the to the scene is even if I admired a scene a whole lot, like if I love the Plimsolls and all these other bands that I thought were really cool at that time. Right. I, if I wasn't writing Plimsolls type of music, I certainly wasn't going to try, you know, it was always just what was coming out of my head. If I've made power pop compilations in the past, don't worry about it now would be the song that I would pick off the, the Blazers record to put on there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I remember writing that. I remember exactly where I was and showing it to my friend Matt Barrett, and and um, I just felt like, oh, this is this is I've got something really good here. I mean, I hear it now; it's pretty simple, you know. It's but the I think the emotion is intact, you know. It's it was um, it was sincere. Yeah, if there was so if Rhino, you know, put out a power pop box set or something, definitely that song I would put it on there if I was curating it, <laughs> you know. Especially, Thank you. especially given your history afterwards, you know, 
it would be that would be another reason to include it but um so the the mando montage compilation so that's on dolphin records i think the only other album i have on dolphin is the tommy keen places right. that are gone record great great record yep yeah did you yeah, know dolphin him? grew up uh i knew tommy a little bit we toured um i i was in i had a thing with don dixon called me and dixon where we do a our show was um half his songs and half mine and we toured the northeast with let's active and tommy keen um oh, cool. really nice little bill yeah um and and tommy was yeah dolphin was was out of durham north carolina but more specifically it was out of uh the record bar chain of stores uh it was kind of birthed out of that corporation and uh, headed by a guy named josh greer who is still a music etern- uh, attorney a big i see his name every couple of years if some some big court case comes out it's usually josh greer is involved with it or management but yeah, so their first thing they wanted to do was was get themselves on the map with a compilation of North Carolina bands, and everybody sent their stuff in, and um, I was the only guy to get two songs on the album, so I felt felt pretty proud of myself. Yeah. And um, so Boot and Sputnik got a lot of attention, and uh, a review in Rolling Stone that was really positive. I'm a looking for a Sputnik. I'm a looking for a Sputnik. Blazers, I was in this band, The Dads, and then I decided to not be in any more Democratic bands where, you know, here's one by the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I formed Rick Rock with two guys I didn't know before the band. Like, I just picked out a great drummer in town and a great bass player and uh, Andy Church and Chip Shelby, and we uh, we rehearsed for nine months before anybody heard us live in person. And I just had this, I was kind of 26, kind of peaking with my with my uh, ambition, I guess, and really on fire and writing a song a day and that kind of shit. So we had like 20 songs. We had a, a song on two songs on the album. We had a review in Rolling Stone and then we came out and played live and we had a full set that was completely rehearsed and people were kind of blown away. And that was probably the one of the few times in my life where I actually had a plan and executed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and it worked well, you know, we were really good and we started we started moving up um, from just playing clubs to opening for national acts. Like I opened for Berlin, 
Romantics and R.E.M. and um, started to do that level of show, which was kind of the next step from just kicking around the clubs. And I started to feel like maybe I do have something here, you know, like maybe this could happen. I, I still didn't know how the hell to make it happen because I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I wasn't in New York or L.A. and I didn't know anybody in the industry other than people like Don Dixon. So we we went on a we went on my uh, girlfriend at the time booked us a tour that was really crazy. We went from like Chapel Hill to South Carolina to Texas to Indiana to Nebraska. You know, it was like, oh, my God. And the van broke down in Nebraska. And the drummer said, I'm going to go back to North Carolina, get my job at the nuclear plant. Sorry, I can't take this anymore because um, he had to pay for the broken van. And the drummer, uh, bass player went with him and, and my girlfriend and I went to her mom's house in Chicago to lick our wounds for a while. And that was the end of the, of, uh, of Rick Rock. It was like nine months of prep and maybe nine months of touring. And uh, that was it. But that song, Buddha Buddha, uh, really kind of unlocked a lot of stuff for me. Well, it was a very popular song. Uh, it got played a lot on, on college radio in North Carolina, and and it was voted one of the 10 best records ever made in North Carolina by the Greensboro newspaper, and people still write to me about it. It's like one of their favorite songs from that period of the early 80s, and uh, it was also a different kind of song from me. It, it, it I felt really naked um, with the lyric, like saying stuff like, everything I do, Buddha did with love, and that's what I aspire to. I, I thought that was really... I felt exposed, like, oh, my God, are people going to bust me on that? And, of course, nobody did because they like, you know that part I like? Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. <laughs> they like that part. <laughs> so we never know what really what we're doing. But I felt like that was a I felt like that was a concise statement of in in um, support of the concept of love disguised in a, in a catchy little song. So that was kind of my mission at the time, I think. And so is the is the Mondo Montage record a pretty good representation of the scene at the time in Chapel Hill? I think or? so. I think so. I think I mean are X Teens on it? Um yeah. Yeah. And X Teens and uh, the states, Fabulous Knob. The States already the had a couple of major label records out before this, but um this is my favorite song by the band on here, the one that don't call my name anymore. 
I don't even know if I remember that. Were they from South Carolina, maybe? Maybe. They had they had two records out before this. The second one was called Picture Me With You. I think it was on it was on one of those labels like Portrait or one of those where the majors were pretending to have an indie label at the time kind of thing. Right, right. Um, I, um, I don't remember the states. I think they might have been from South Carolina. I, I might be remembering wrong, but I think Don Dixon had a song on there and uh, Let's Active was on there. So I, I think it was a pretty fair representation of what was going on. Um, you know, the, the, the coolest bands ever down there were like the DBs and H-Bombs and Let's Active and all that, all those guys from Winston-Salem. You know, they kind of made their made their mark and got associated with um, Stamy was associated with Big Star and all that. So back in the 70s and 80s, I, Chapel Hill was kind of an island almost. I just felt like we had our scene down there. And if anybody ever discovered it, fine. But there wasn't a mad rush to to, to try to join the mainstream. I think we always thought we were cooler than the mainstream, maybe or something, you know, looking back on it. I, 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 the the big context i mean we we always wanted to be recognized but but chapel hill was not full of showmen do you know what i mean like um van halen could never come out of chapel hill because chapel hill was just too cool you'd wear your jeans and your t-shirt on stage and you know you could be animated but if you were posing like a rock star you'd be ridiculed you know yeah it's a totally alternative vibe yes yeah yes you got to be smart yeah a lot of the music is probably not moving your ass. It's more moving your head. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that's really where we came from. And I remember hearing Van Halen on the radio for the first time and said, oh, my God, just listen to that. There's so much fucking swagger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was it was kind of startling. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I love that shit. I just love I love how, how great it sounded. I mean, it was it took a took a minute to get used to. But since uh, apparently David Lee Roth didn't even know the words to you really got me, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, I digress. Yeah. So how do you go from, from being Rick Rock to becoming Parthenon Huxley? Well, Rick Rock was a high school nickname because I was, I went to high school in Greece and there was another Rick over there and he said, let's be a band. You be Rick Rock. I'll be Rick Roll. And I said, okay, that's fine. (laughs) Rick Roll. Now, now that means something completely different. (laughs) Yeah, right? We're no strangers to love. So that's where that came from. Just kind of stupid fun. And then, I don't know, I guess I just... Um, I guess it's the prerogative of uh, of artists that they can change they can change their name and try that. And I just thought that I was kicking around Parthenon Jones or whatever. Just I I thought that as a shout out to my time of growing up in Greece. And then I liked this book called Island by Aldous Huxley. And uh, I just thought Parthenon Huxley was a cool sounding name. And why not? Why not change my name and you know try something a little bit different? And maybe I was trying to move on from Rick Rock, I guess. I do have a rejection letter from Columbia uh, <laughs> two years before Sunday nights. Um, Steve Ralboski was an A&R guy there, and he said, might I suggest you change your name? I think the material is is stronger than, than something by something called Rick Rock. So I don't know if that had any real influence, but it might have. Um, but I think I just, 
I really kind of just remember that I thought it would be fun to be Parthenon and Huxley. And um, so on my 30th birthday, I moved to New York with my girlfriend who had become my wife. And I said, OK, from now on, it's 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 Parthenon and Huxley. And moving to New York helped with that change. I, I didn't have to convince all my friends that I wasn't Rick. Right. So you went from having a rejection letter from Columbia to getting signed by Columbia? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't a straight line, but yeah. Yeah. After Rick Rock broke up, after the van broke down in Nebraska and the band mutinied and, and all that, I, I my, my heart was broken because I love my little band. And I didn't really want to just go back to Chapel Hill and start over playing in the clubs. I thought we had something. Or I thought I thought if we didn't have something bigger than that, I thought at least I, I might. And so I, what I really wanted to do was, uh, until that point, whatever record I made, like especially Buddha Buddha and Sputnik, I remember I had like $400. When the hours were done, we were done. You know what I mean? And I and I thought I'd really love to record two songs with no time limit and no budget restraint. So I I went back to the same studio I'd done Buddha and I said, look, can we work in the off hours? Like when you're done with your paying session, can we make some kind of arrangement where I can come in after hours and we can do work on two songs? And if anything ever comes of it, we'll split whatever happens. And he said, yeah. So it took six months but i got in and did did two songs and like every three weeks or a you know month and a half he'd call and say okay come on out <laughs> you know and um i sent those two songs to about seven labels and two of them i think island and emi called me up you know from listening to the cassette with a phone number on it and called me up and said hey your two songs were the favorite at our a and r meeting this week you got any more and those two songs had taken six months i said oh sure yeah i got more <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so we quickly put another package together. And long story short, basically, I, I took some meetings with the labels and I got a demo deal with Island that didn't work. They passed. And then I did a couple more for another label. And I eventually my my reel got bigger and bigger with mostly pretty well produced stuff. And then some four track demos that I'd done. I went to uh, I moved to New York on my 30th birthday, like I said. And some friends of ours were in a band called Head for Tall Trees. They were like an 80s pop thing around 1986. Very synthy and a, a, a handsome couple. Uh, they got signed to Chrysalis, and a guy named Mark Goldenberg flew out from L.A. to interview with them to be their uh, producer. And Mark Goldenberg brought his manager, a guy named Michael Solomon, up to New York. And so I met Michael Solomon based on the manager guy, based on the recommendation from my friends who said, hey, we really like these guys and they should hear your tape. So I gave Michael Solomon my tape. He really liked it. He said, do you mind if I shop this out in L.A.? And I said, have at it. He put it on the he knew uh, the vice president of MCA Music Publishing. He stuck the cassette on his desk and said, please call me after you've heard this. And that was a guy named Rick Shoemaker at MCA who loved the tape. And this guy, Michael Solomon, who I'd only met once, called me in New York and said, how about a publishing deal? And I said, what's that? <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, they'll give you money to record and, and they'll only take half of your publishing. So it's a co-publishing deal. I keep all the writer and half the owner share. And they have a studio out here in L.A. where you can record anytime you want. And I said, Jesus, that sounds pretty good. So I met with Shoemaker. He flew out to New York to, to do some biz and also to meet me. We went out to dinner. We had a great time. And I signed with MCA and it was uh, as a songwriter, but what they didn't want me to write for other people. They wanted me to write 
what would be my album. So I moved out to L.A., crashed on different people's couches and started recording. And, and the good thing about being with MCA was they would thereafter take all the meetings with the labels. Like say, hey, we've signed this guy. We think this guy's the next thing. We've signed his publishing. We want to we want to work with a label and take it right to the top, blah, blah, blah. And there was a guy at Columbia named Jamie Cohen who'd heard, he knew Rick Rock. He knew uh, uh, my song Button from the second Mondo montage album, uh, More Mondo. And he knew that was a song by Rick Rock. And then he he heard this Parthenon on Huxley tape and there was a song called Button on it. And he said, isn't this Rick, is Rick Rock Parthenon on Huxley? <laughs> <laughs> right. So he was interested and intrigued. And he brought along David Kahn, who was the staff producer at Columbia. So suddenly Columbia, probably unbeknownst to that guy, Steve Robosky, who had written that rejection letter, uh, Columbia was suddenly interested out on the, at least the West Coast office was. Um, and so that eventually turned into a, a demo, another demo deal with them. And then um, Khan decided to sign me and we made that record. Yeah. And you, you already mentioned that at the time you put this record out. It's weird because in the early 80s, you had, you know, New Wave and Power Pop was huge. But then you get kind of this period in the, the late 80s, especially where there's not a lot of records like this. But then in the 90s, you get this flood of bands again that are kind of called power pop you know there's kind of this reinvention of the concept of power pop in the 90s with like material issue and green right. Bay woods and teenage fan club there's tons of bands you sure know, later but yeah you were kind of in this period in between <laughs> where there wasn't there wasn't a lot of stuff like this you're right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it was a it was odd i mean like I said, Crowded House might have been the only thing in that whole era that, you know, I loved legitimately, like as a, you know, as a power pop band. Uh, I, and they were unique, too. They were cool. Um, I, I can still listen to that record. I mean, I, we did last night. My wife and I played the whole thing last night. Oh, um, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's so good. What yeah. a great, what a great record. Ugh. But yeah, there wasn't much at the time. I mean, I I I, uh, I remember after I got signed, like a week later, I was lying in bed and I said, "Man, how is this going to work? Nobody knows who I am. I'm not selling out clubs. I, I I'm not doing hair metal. I mean, what the fuck? You know, how is this going to work?" And they picked "Chance to Be Loved" to be the first single, which I thought was a very daring choice because it's such a bizarre, you know, standalone piece of music. I mean, I did write it and produce it, so I I, I liked it, <laughs> but. But as a single, I, I thought it was pretty adventurous. And, um, you know, they threw it out there. It didn't do much. Everybody, yeah, gets a chance to be loved. Gets a chance to be loved. Everybody, yeah, gets a chance to be Inside my head, stop to tell me loud 
that was pretty much it for Columbia's interest. They, after the first, you know, the first single didn't blow up. Uh, the second one was put out half-heartedly. That was double our numbers, which probably should have been the first single. Yeah, that's my favorite song on the record. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really obvious. It's really straight ahead, and it's got a nice story to it. And in fact, they, they, if they had stuck with one more, if they had given that uh, uh, as much of a push as they tried with Chance to Be Loved, I think something might have happened. But uh, they didn't. So. Listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. 
I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You know, what's weird is that I signed to Columbia probably when I was 31. You know, I was already over the hill. <laughs> and and there was nothing really happening like that. I mean, the fact that I had a publisher and a label kind of, you know, that interested in me based on those songs is almost kind of miraculous when you look at it now. I'm still proud of it that I got that I reached that point only based on songs and not not because I was somebody's son or I had an uncle in the business. You know what I mean? Right, uh, right. It's it's all based on music, and I, I can hang my hat on that. I wish it had been more successful, of course. But did did you know. did the label make a did you, they shell out for a video? Was there a vi no video, yeah. no tour support, and and I think it basically came down to it was a West Coast signing by David Kahn, who you know he'd done Fishbone and he'd done Bangles for a different label. Uh, no, actually that was Columbia. No, he'd done Bangles, so. 
there's another power pop sort of thing. True. But no, it, I wasn't a, you know, uh, uh, I wasn't a high priority signing. I mean, it wasn't like there was a bidding war. It was out of the West Coast. So I had no power. I had no pole at, at BlackRock in New York um, at the main office. So I didn't have any big wigs on my side. I didn't have, like I said, I didn't have an uncle. I didn't have a college roommate who was a powerful DJ. I just didn't have that magic piece that might have made a difference. I had a handful of people at MCA in Columbia who believed in me. A fairly small budget record, you know, it was like 70,000 bucks. It wasn't like 400,000 or anything like that uh, that they used to do. And I think it was one of those that they agreed to take a chance on and maybe at that at that level of money they probably maybe they they might have even lost interest when they heard the budget, you know. What are we spending on that? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? I and, and what's funny, I look back and I was like 31, 32 during this whole period. I still thought it was the music business and not music business. I, I really felt I was still just a musician, you know, and, and the whole business machination around it and what the labels did was a complete mystery to me. Um, you know, we all know a lot more now and and uh, we have a lot of perspective on it. But I, I just. I didn't know how they operated or, or why they operated like they did. Like, you know, they, I'd go to the office and they'd say, here's your product supervisor. I go, all right. <laughs> yeah. All Some these... guy from Texas with a button down shirt. And it's like, okay, do you know anything about me? Or, you know, were you assigned or do you, I just didn't know what the fuck it was, you know? And, and we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough money on our own to do a, um, a video. I, in hindsight, I can see, like, why didn't my manager ask MCA to put up some money for a video? You know, whatever. A video probably would have been a good idea, but I think in those days, that was like $100,000 to do a video, and that was more than my recording budget, so who knows? Right. Right, but in 1988, I doubt there's a single artist that broke through that didn't have a video. It's like it was an essential. Mm -hmm. How do they think they're going to sell records in 1988 if they don't have a video? Yeah, how, how are you going to get noticed, <laughs> you know? I know, and I, and I think I think maybe if if it had gotten some traction at radio, they probably would have. Yeah, right. You know, maybe that was the plan. Well, let's see how it does. Give it three weeks. Give it give it a month, and then we'll see if we want to do that. You know, um, I don't think it was an easy. Uh, I don't think it was an easy sell at the label to to spend uh, whatever it was. You know, whatever it would typically be a hundred grand or something on an artist like me. Again, I'm just kind of guessing. But it, I'm, you know, I, I've interviewed enough people or listened to enough interviews on podcasts and things to. It, it, there's so many stories where you just like, the record label, never even tried. It's like, why do they invest any money if they're, never even going to try, to, break the artist? It doesn't make any sense. At yeah, least, I, at least a little effort, you would think. <laughs> well, they but, took out some ads. You know yeah. they. They took out some ads and blah, 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 and, and you know, did a little push. I, you know, whenever there's a situation of any kind, I say, okay, well, first of all, let's establish, were there people involved? Which <laughs> 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 is the source of, source of everything that goes right or wrong in the world, right? So I, I, I think I can imagine that maybe back in 1988, if David Kahn said he wanted to produce a guy named Parthenon Huxley and it was only going to cost $70,000, they probably said, all right. That wasn't like the label saying, great, what do you need? You know, how much video budget do you want? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't think it was that kind of situation. It was probably just like, well, let's keep Khan happy. He's not asking for much. 
we don't have to worry about this, you know? Right. Uh, you know, it's it's always in relationships, right? Like, oh, yeah, David's going to make another funny little record. Right. You know? So right. let him do that. He did the bangles. We'll give him a we'll give him a few of his own little projects, side projects, and then he'll we'll make him do something good again. You know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, again, I'm I'm just sort of surmising here, but I know that you know anything you explore, it always comes down to personal relationships. It always comes down to who's who's got the ear of the big wig, or or who's good at hustling up some money, or who's whatever. You know, and we we weren't that great at it. I think we were pretty thrilled to be on Columbia in the first place. I don't think we had a master plan of how I was going to take over the world. I mean, at some point, did you become aware in the 90s, probably, of like the power pop cult <laughs> that was out there? Well, you know, skip ahead a few years. And after I worked with E and and um, Kyle Benson and some other people, and um, I guess Kyle was later. But when I got left, uh, when I left MCA and I, I was free to write whatever I wanted to again, because at the last three or four years there, they wanted me to co-write with people, which is what led me to E and all this other stuff. When, uh, when I did P Hux and P Hux Deluxe came out and that seemed to really get a, a, a response. I, there started to be these, um, Poptopia festivals out in LA and, and they started to kind of coalesce as a visible group of people, you know? Mm-hmm. I always loved raspberries and the who and all this other stuff, all this other pop stuff. But I, I never knew many people, other people who really did, except my close friends. So when the power, the Poptopia festivals and, and um, eventually later, you know, David Bash kind of took over the whole concept and has been running with it forever. I would I would run into people who would say, hey, everybody loves this record. And, and the Internet was just starting and people were starting to talk about P. Hux Deluxe on that. And then there was this magazine called Oddities and we were voted, you know, record of the year for 1995 you know ahead of matthew sweet and a bunch of other great bands so it was like oh looks like we're we're being noticed you know p hux deluxe was kind of probably the closest thing i had to actual something that was well timed
tears of joy turn into rest But the sky clears and there stands us We bang our heads then wonder why We have to laugh to keep from crying To keep from crying To keep from crying To keep from crying So how did that, how did P-Hucks Deluxe happen? Again, it was a weird kind of confluence of, of things. Like I got let go from MCA, so I was jobless. Instead of getting a job like a normal person, I just decided, well, I'll start a new band. I, I hooked up with this drummer, Gordon Townsend, who I'd heard about from my old bass player. He came over to my house and we played like two minutes of music and I knew he was my favorite drummer ever. Uh, he was just spectacular. And I he said, you know, I know a bass player who's pretty good. I mean, who's really good, and we'd be lucky to get him. And he, this guy, Rob Miller. And Gordon and Rob had both played with Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers. Do you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. Out in Philly. Mm-hmm. I remember a story in Rolling Stone that said, on the West Coast was Jane's Addiction, and on the East Coast was Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers. They were the, t- the two possible next big things. I had this great new band, like almost instantly, and, and also... After I left MCA and I, I stopped writing with other people and I could just write what I wanted to, I was writing, I was walking my dogs through Elysian Park and like practically writing a song a day. I was just on fire again. It was really, really awesome. Uh, so I had a new band and a whole bunch of songs. And then I got a call out of the blue. This guy named Matt Heimbold had just graduated UCLA and he found my number somehow and called me up and he said, he said, Sunday Nights was my favorite record all throughout college, and I'm starting a record label up in Monterey, and I want you to be my first artist, but you have to promise me you can make a record as good as Sunday Nights. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, good timing, Matt Heimbold, whoever you are, because I just have a shit pile of great new songs and a great band. So I said, yes, I can do that. He didn't really know what he was doing, so I helped him along and said, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll record basics on tape to analog down here at a very reasonably priced studio. And then um, his partner had a studio, had a digital studio with ADATS uh, up in Monterey. And I said, we'll do overdubs at the home studio, um, which will save you money. And, and I'll come up, I'll come up to Monterey and we'll do all the stuff up there. So we, that's how it came about. We recorded all our basics in LA and uh, at, at great sounding um, studios. I would drive up to Monterey with a, legal pad on the seat next to me in my little truck and listen to the roughs. And I, I jot down overdub ideas on the five hour drive, six hour drive. And by the time I get up to Monterey, I'd probably have two full pages of ideas and they'd say, so do you know what you want to do? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so the record just came together. Fantastic. Uh, just beautifully, really easily. And Rob and Gordon were tremendous. And it was just one of those magic kind of albums. I was really confident in all the songs and, and the performances in my band. And 
the label was really gung ho, and they did a real as a as a startup indie. I, I thought they did a great job. They released like three singles and actually got some airplay. And we played at the Greek Theater with Chicago, and we did a few other things and got reasonably popular out in L.A. Uh, at least fairly well known. It's hard to make any money out there, but but people will come to see you. So the press was a you know I was getting great press and some radio play, and I had a great band. So it was it was a really nice rebirth in a way. was that Eric Carmen, he was also on Pioneer in Japan. Okay. And I think at some point they must have given him a bunch of releases from the label because I had this great moment happen. <laughs> I don't know. It must have been 15 years ago. When did Raspberries reunite? And, you know, they were they were on tour for about a year with yeah. Uh, yeah. Four, four, four people and four extra people in the band that they called the Overdubs. Right. Maybe 2005, something like that. Yeah, but something I, like that somewhere in there and i saw um my brother and one of my best friends uh two of my best friends from from growing up in greece the four of us went up to see him at maybe house of blues in atlantic city was there a house of blues in atlantic city might have been we went backstage somehow you know we're hanging out and there's there's eric carmen i always just love the raspberries we're all big raspberries fans and and i said hey eric i'm i'm parthenon huxley i'm just a huge fan and he goes parthenon huxley p hux i love your music <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> and my brother and two of my best friends were standing there. Wow. It was the greatest moment. It was like, ah, see? <laughs> what Eric Carmen just said. <laughs> so, uh, and I said, well, yeah, we were on the same label in Japan or something. He said, yeah, yeah. And he said, yeah, I love your stuff. Went, oh, my God. So that's kind of the coolest thing that ever came out of that Japan deal. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty great. So you've put out a lot of music since P. Hux Deluxe. 
right? Yep. So have you made a career of it, of, of music or, you know? You mean, do I have a job? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a job. Um, I have made a career of it, but uh, there's good years and bad years. That's for damn sure. Right. And, you know, I made the record after Deluxe was Purgatory Falls after my my wife, Janet, who I'd married out in L.A., uh, my second wife, passed away from cancer. And Purgatory Falls was all about that. And that that got released by Universal in a digital format. They, they were trying to move over to digital. And that was uh, reached number one on a chart in Rolling Stone magazine called the Exclusive Download Chart, which I don't know what that chart means, but I, I was number one. <laughs> right. So, that was kind of cool. I, I, I never got much money out of that. And really, I started to make a better living when um, when I got a call out of the blue in 1998 uh, from this guy, Eric Troyer, to, to audition for ELO Part 2, which I did over in Birmingham, England. And I, I joined the band and they said, great, learn these 38 songs and we'll see you in Uruguay. And this whole thing came about because I had played a Poptopia festival down in Orange County, south of LA. And my band P Hux did like five songs and this guy, Jeffrey Foskett, do you know Jeffrey? No. Jeffrey Foskett was in the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson's band and, okay. and, um, and all that. And he's got a bunch of independent records and, and he does kind of a surf thing. And he was great and we met backstage and, and um, we were admiring each other and becoming best friends and all that kind of crap like musicians do. Um, this guy, Eric Troyer from ELO Part 2, had called Jeffrey Foskett up and said, look, I sang on Double Fantasy by John Lennon. I never got a gold album. And Jeff, I know you're good with the labels. Do you think you can talk to somebody at Geffen to get me a gold album? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I'll, 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 I, I can talk to somebody there. I'll find you one. And he says, by the way, ELO Part 2 is looking for a guitar player who can sing and write songs. Do you know anybody? And he goes, oh, yeah, P. Hux. Stop the auditions. He's the perfect guy for you. So Foskett really did me a solid. And that was at that little a little Poptopia festival that I played at that I didn't get paid for. But I tell my music school students that I lecture at occasionally, um, you never know what's behind the first door. Even if the first door is not paying you anything, you might as well walk through it, you know. Right, um, right. So then I've been I've been with ELO Part 2 since then. And uh, we, you know, we're now called the orchestra. But touring with them started i really started to make a little a decent income and on years when we have good years with them it's probably you know 60 percent of my income and then i've i also i've also done production music like music for film and tv that earns me royalties and then i i've started teaching about 15 years ago and, and i still make my records and it all kind of pieces together um i'm kind of a 1099 guy you know like there's probably seven or eight different 1099s that I do each year pretty much adds up to a living. I think if I was living by myself, it would support me completely. But of course I have two kids and a wife and luckily my wife works. Right. So, um, together we have a, we have a pretty good living based on, on her working and, and the money that I've accumulated from all these different streams. You know, it's not like I have a retirement fund, or anything, right. but, but yeah, I've made a career of it, and and again, it's I. Sometimes it's a it's a miracle that it that it has happened, and other times I feel like it could have been better. But um, I get to do what I want essentially, and in in all its many forms, you know, whether it's working with other people or doing film and television or teaching or or playing ELO songs. But yeah, 
So it's um, it's been a really interesting and, and fun life. Not exactly how I envisioned it or, or pictured it, but a lot of nice things have happened. Yeah, I mean, for someone like me who works in a warehouse, that's an amazing success story <laughs> that you've made a career of music. You know, I mean, that alone is is wonderful, you know, so. It is. And I and I don't want to I mean, it's sometimes it's pretty bare bones. And again, I do have a working wife, which makes right. a huge difference. Yeah. And, and we can we can cover ourselves, you know, and we can we can live a, a nice life. And I'm not sure what the real I think I'm just. I knew a long time ago I was a terrible employee. <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't really want to hire me because all I'm doing is thinking about music. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not thinking about your freaking dishes or <laughs> or your, you know, I, I always just took shitty jobs that I knew I could quit in case something ever happened musically. So I was like a country music DJ. I was a dishwasher at two or three different places, a busboy. I did all sorts of crap jobs. Um, just knowing that I, you know, I could do them in my sleep and I could think about music. So I... But um, there's been there were lean years where it's like, God damn, how did I pay the rent again? You know, I, I, I right. sometimes I couldn't even figure it out. But something I always just felt like something would happen or I'd produce somebody's record or I'd go, you know, get hired to go on tour. And, and something like that always basically always did. Other than COVID stopping us, the orchestra has been on a great run the past like 10 years. We've we've um, we're a fantastic band and, and we've we've got a lean touring machine and. We, we do a good payday when we play, um, and I can't wait for it to resume. this sounds but i think i'm getting better right <laughs> and, and or at least i haven't atrophied like i know a lot of hit makers who make fantastic records that we all love and we probably both know when they put out a new record i'm not real thrilled you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's like i don't need to hear another record you know and, and it's i i feel like i have somehow outmaneuvered that trend and i really feel like my records are good and and even very good and and they keep on 
I still have something to say. And it might be because I'm not living up to something that's really well known. You know what I mean? Like, um, I have a few thousand fans who give a shit when my records come out, and I think they're excited to hear no matter what I do. And it's not like uh, Chance to Be Loved was such a giant hit that if I do anything different from it, people are disappointed. Right. <laughs> so so um, I'm really excited about that, that I still have songs coming out of me, and 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 it's it's all the same process that it, that it was from Don't Worry About It Now on. You know, it's it's never been any different. It's like, oh, hey. This thing in my head sounds really good. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it down and I'm gonna work on it and and I think I actually have something to say that matches up nicely with the music. And I've got a great local band here. Uh, my guys in Maryland are just fantastic players. And there's a great studio right here in town. I've I've met the 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 guy who I think is really special here in terms of recording. So I've got a nice little situation here in boring unknown Maryland with a with a great band, great studio. Um, and still music coming out of me. So I'm, uh, this is the one I, and, and what's also been really nice is that you probably remember when the internet was just kind of a blip and a bleep and, you know, we couldn't imagine what it would turn into, but yeah. Kickstarter, I mean, that to me, like when I first did Kickstarter, maybe seven years ago or whatever it was, I just couldn't believe how well the internet works. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, God, you can actually pitch a project and people will send you money and uh, I've done two Kickstarter things. And, I've, you know, the first one was like $15,000. Second was $17,000. You know, that's a modest album budget, but it really helps because I still use live musicians in real studios. I'm not doing everything in the box. And um, I can still make a professional record based on the way I was brought up in real studios. I can still recreate that. And um, I know it's anachronistic now. I'm not really... You know, I'm not doing hip hop or pop music or anything like that. I'm still doing what I do, but I think I do it really well. And, and I'm I'm really, really, really happy with my last record. This is the one I think it's just it sounds well, it, it sounds exactly like I wanted it to. And that's kind of been the baseline for everything I've ever done. It, it sounds like it's the best I can do at that time. You know what I mean? This is the
I feel like those records, the records I make are the one thing in life that I really do that to, to the full extent. Like every, it's got to be perfect from beginning to end. Not perfect, but it's got to be what I want from the beginning to end. And I do that more with almost anything else in my life. I, it's the one, one area where I'm, I'm kind of a control freak and, and, um, and it has to be, it, it, there's a, there's a real standard that it has to reach. I can let a lot of other stuff in my life slide, like exercising or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know whatever. But my records, I, I really stand behind for what it's worth, you know? Yeah, I I write songs and the the big problem is I can never get, if I try to do it on GarageBand or something, it's never what I want or what I hear in my head. Yeah. And having a band in a studio, that's what that's really the only way to do it i think to you know to try to get what's in your head on tape probably that's the only way that's worked for me i mean yeah. I, I i think i think being in the box is really cool for for lots of stuff i mean you know billy eilish's brother is really good at it and yeah. all the hip-hop guys are fucking amazing at it you know I feel like I would be kind of a dilettante if I started, if I went into that world, the, the world I know really well is I'm, a, I'm an anachronistic, you know, late 20th century recording artist. That's what I am. I, I, I fully embrace it. I fully understand it. And that means great live musicians in a room. And that's what it sounds like in my head anyway. So, you know, yeah. why would I want to, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. So I, I, I feel you. And, and if, you know, I, I hope. Um, have you ever have you ever worked in a studio? I mean, have no. you ever record? No, I haven't. You got to do that, Brian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Music, you know, it's a it, it's a it's the greatest thing on earth, and it's just a terrible business, you know. Which is probably how it ought to be. If the if the greatest things on earth were easy, they wouldn't be the greatest things on earth. I don't know. I just without I try to picture my life without music, and it's it's unfathomable, you know the joy I get from it and the, the sustenance and the, the emotion and the heartache and everything that it provides is just the food of my life. I can't, maybe that's why I just couldn't do anything else. You know, I, I just did, I just really wanted to be in it. And even though I was never a planner or like, I know where I'm going to be in five years, that was never me. But I just always wanted to hear that next thing in my, that was in my head. I needed to hear it out there, you know, like get it out there. And I'd become a good enough player. I was always kind of a good enough singer and player, you know. I could do that to an extent. And that's improved over the years, too. It's I've gotten to be a really good player and a much better singer because I work with people who are better than me. And uh, got my ass kicked a little bit, you know. I said, oh, I see where I have to step up my game. <laughs> like, don't sing out of tune anymore. But, uh, yeah, it's an amazing thing, music. Not, there's nothing else there's nothing like it that can give you that adrenaline rush that instant adrenaline or instantly have you in tears you know i mean i guess not everybody's like that but for me it's like yeah there's nothing else like it that can have such an effect on you in so many different ways so, yeah instantaneous you know yeah yeah it's incredible it's hardwired into our into our whatever whatever that thing up inside our head is however that crazy thing is wired you know it's it's um music is it just lights up parts of the brain that make you feel good that release endorphins i guess you know i don't know i mean it's yeah. bizarre and there's only 12 notes which is another mystery how do you make all that great shit out of that it for for me it's melody 
that's what I love. You know. Yeah. I can't listen to jazz <laughs> or I don't really care about instrumental music. It's like what I love is songwriting and melody. That's what has an effect on me. And yeah, yeah. who knows where it comes from or why it's like that. I don't know why I've I've loved uh, music. It's been like my favorite thing since I was a kid. I don't really know why, you know. My parents weren't into it or anything like that, so. Yeah, same. Absolute same. Yeah. My parents were listening to Ray Conniff. <laughs> my dad didn't even listen to music. My dad will drive in the car in silence and not even have the radio on. <laughs> it was, well, I did because I have music in my head. It drives my wife crazy. So can I put something on? I said, no, I'm working on something. All right. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I've heard other people talk about that. I have the same thing. You'll just you'll be writing a song in your head, just all day long. <laughs> There's always yep. a song playing. It's really weird, but mm-hmm. yeah. No, I know. And eventually, it just kind of gets to the point where okay, I better put this down. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's immediate. You know, I'll wake up with a riff or something, or come down here to my office and put it on my phone at least. You know, right. Well, that's one thing I'm jealous of is musicians who can take what's in their head and just play it on the guitar or whatever. That's not something I can really pull off. But yeah, it's a nice it's a nice thing. I've I've um, I've gotten to the point where it's pretty much no matter what I'm hearing in my head, I can get it. I can I can get it down, right. and uh, that's a real blessing. I mean, when I was first coming up, I was like, "What the hell is this in my head? I don't I had I had no idea what these chords are." Right. But uh, but after 40, 50 years, you get good at it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but this has been really great uh, talking to you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it's been great. Thanks, Brian. Uh, pleasure, to, pleasure to meet you. Strange, but I swear.